We are continuing in the series of Romans. This is the third message that we have been, second, third message that we have been uh, preaching about. And last week, we start in a really low note. And I wish I can tell you that I got better news for you, but actually for the next few weeks, we're going to continue talking about God's wrath and God's judgment toward all of us according to our sins. But in many ways, for, I believe that th this is an amazing opportunity for us to realize how when we put this bad news in the perspective of the good news of the gospel, it really shows us the light of grace in our lives. Let's use our imagination this morning. Imagine a judge who has been known for being very wrecked, very just, a judge that nobody can accuse of doing anything wrong. He has presided on many cases, and in every situation, his decision has been always appropriate, just. Now imagine a courtroom full of people. He is right there waiting for the defendant to come closer, and he realized that the defendant is a very close relative of him. Is a person that he loves so much, but he did something wrong. As he looks down from his bench, he finds that close family member standing there with hopes that he can be merciful to him. This person is facing serious charges, and there is clear evidence against them. And the law is explicit about the consequences. So the whole courtroom is silent, waiting for his sentence. With heavy heart, the judge picks up the gobble. His hand trembles for a moment, but he knows what he must do. And he declares that family member guilty as charged, and prescribes the mandatory sentence. The room goes silent. Just for a few sobs for the rest of the family who cannot believe that this man was not merciful to his relative. In this heartbreaking moment, The judge knows that even his own family member is not exempt from the laws that he's sworn to uphold. The Bible has been clear from the early passages in Genesis all the way to the last book in the Old Testament in Malachi. And in every book in the New Testament, the judgment day is inevitable. 
It will happen. Sooner or later, it will happen. God has done everything in his power to shield humanity from the impending judgment. But make no mistake. This world order, this world as we know it, one day will come to an end. This brings us to the central theme of the message this morning. God's judgment allows no excuses, shortcuts, or exceptions. You heard that? God's judgment allows no excuses, no shortcuts, and no exceptions. And that's exactly what we are reading in this chapter in the book of Romans. When we opened this letter, the Apostle Paul was deeply immersed in this subject, warning us that no one is exempt from God's judgment. Most biblical interpreters think that this chapter 2 and all the way to chapter 3, Paul is referring to the Jewish people, to many of them. Others believe that it's actually more moralist Jewish or Gentiles who are not the way that Paul describes in chapter 1, pagans who were sinners with those overt sins that, he, that they were doing. So either they were Jewish people or Gentiles, what we read in verses 1 through 16 in chapter 2, we're talking about those who are people who consider themselves good people. I don't know if you are ever share the gospel with somebody or, or you try to explain the four spiritual laws to somebody. And, and the person, when you ask the question, do you think if you die today, you will you go to heaven? And the person will pause for a moment and, and he will say, well, I, I think so because I'm a good person. I don't do anything wrong. I mean, there are worse people than me. So in comparison with people that I know, I think I, I might have a slight chance. Well, this is the kind of people that Paul is having in mind. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul has been thinking about the overt sins of the Gentile people, these pagans. He dedicated 15 verses to talk about those sins. But then now, in chapter 2, in all the way to verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul will be shifting his focus from the pagan, from the Gentiles, to the religious people. Which we can call them covert sinners. He allocates 37 verses on this topic. Paul is talking about covert sins by religious people. Sins as judgmentalism, self-righteousness, and pride. Why do you think he spent so many verses talking about the sins of the covert sinners or the religious people? And just 15 verses talking about the open sins of the pagans. Do you know why? Because religious people are often more difficult to convince of their need of grace. To recognize that they have sinned. As well, respectable sins according to their minds. 
So we prepare to dive into this text. Let me offer a warning. This is going to be a very convic convicting passage for all of us. And if for some reason you are feeling uncomfortable, get in line. I have been uncomfortable the entire week. However, if you approach to this section in Romans, even the entire letter, with a devotional mindset, thinking about, Lord, what is exactly what you want to tell me? Not, not necessarily what is exactly what you're going to tell me so I can tell my wife or my husband or my son or my parents or my friends. No, think about, Lord, what is exactly what do you want to tell me? through these passages, I can guarantee you, if you had that mindset, thinking in you first, you will experience a life transformation. The key is to focus on your need for repentance before you decided to lift up your finger and start pointing in somebody else's wrongdoings. So how is it that God judges people. How does God judge people? In these verses, Paul describes three ways in which God judges the human race. Either if we're talking about Gentiles, even if we're talking about his chosen people, the Jewish people, he judges according to truth, according to works, and according to the light he received. These three ways, according to truth, chapter 2, 2 to 5, according to works, verses 6 to 11, and according to the light they received, verses 12 to 16. And that's exactly what we're going to be studying this morning. So as we explore this critical passage, we will confront ourselves with this unsettled reality that no one can be justified before God through our own deeds. The verdict is the same for everyone. We are all in need of God's grace. Because before the cross, we are all sinners needing God's grace. So I will invite you to open your Bibles, or even if you have your own digital Bible, open it in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. So with this in mind, keep in mind three words. There is no room for excuses. No room for shortcuts and no room for exceptions. So Romans chapter 2 verse 1. Give us the first point. No excuses. God judges according to truth. Have you ever been pulled out for speeding? I have. Almost one in every city that I have lived. And I have been lived in many cities. I'm just, I'm just trying to contribute to the fundraising for the police. Do you notice what I'm doing? I'm trying to rationalize my sin. And this is exactly what Paul has in mind. Every time that we do something wrong, we do something wrong, we rationalize our sins. But if somebody else is doing it, then we point the finger with a heavy thing. I remember one time reading the story of a person who was pulled out for a police, and the excuses that people give. Oh, uh, I just need to go to the bathroom. 
And I couldn't make it. I almost, I almost done it, number two. Other people might say, I'm late for an emergency hair appointment. Even some people say, my pet hamster is about to give birth. And there is a long list of that, to which the officer always says the same thing. The law doesn't care about your excuses. You were speeding. Here is your ticket. At least, here is your warning. This is exactly what we see here. We have so creativity. We're so creative of inventing excuses. But God's judgment is not different. We may try to justify our actions, bend the truth a little, even play the blame games, but God judges according to the truth. His truth, not your truth. When it comes to divine judgment, there is no room for excuses. In other words, excuses for sin will not be excused for God. As we continue in Romans 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul will tell us three fundamental principles here about God's judgment. First is impartial. It's truthful and it's kind, believe it or not. In verse 1, we read, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Do you notice something in this passage? Paul is addressing everyone who acts self-righteously. Either if he's a person is a Jew or a Gentile. In this verse, Paul is, is talking about not the irreligious people that he spoke of in, in verse 1, I mean chapter 1. He's talking about religious people, people like you and me who, who believe in God. Some commentators said that this section, Paul is talking about the moralist. Because even there are some of the Greeks who were good people, that when Paul was talking about the sins, the over sins in verses, you know, 29 to 31, not only homosexuality, but also talking about pride and gossip and all 21 different sins that he's listing in those verses. It's like those who were in the church in Rome, those Christians, were listening to somebody reading the letter and said, yep, that's right, preach it, brother, preach it. That's right, that's right, yep, that's exactly who they are. And now he's switching from talking about them to point the fingers to them and say, but you, you, you. God did not condemn these people just because they were judging others, believe it. He condemned them because they practiced the same sins that they are judging in others. After listing those, Paul is saying with this word, therefore, to connect those overt sins to the sins of these covert sinners. If you feel relieved that you are not guilty of overseas like the people in the world makes, prepare yourself for a surprise. Because now Paul is pointing the fingers to all of us. So in verse 1, 
judgmental attitudes and self-righteousness, those tendencies are dangerous. Excuses for sin will not be excused. Verse 2. Now we can see the universal standard for truth. In verse 2, Paul is emphasizing God's judgment based on truth. And he says, and we know, I mean, he's including the Christians in Rome, and you and I know that the judgment of God rightly, pause for a moment, the judgment of God is true, is truthful, is right, rightly, falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, oh man, and you can highlight that phrase, oh man, because even though in your scripture, in the Bible that you're reading, might not appear in the verse number one of chapter two, in the Greek, appears there. It's a phrase that Paul is using just to talk one-on-one, eye-to-eye, nose-to-nose, with those Christians and saying, you, oh man, you who are doing these things, and there is one thing about practicing that is amazing. Um, because we are all sinners. I mean, nobody can say it's without sin. Constantly, every single day, we, we break our relationship with God in that way. We are all sin. By omission or by commission, we're all sin. We're talking about that kind of sin. We're talking about those who practice sinning. The difference between somebody who occasionally likes to play football, soccer, the real football, uh, and those who practice soccer is huge. I mean, you and I, we can get a football and start kicking the ball outside, and we're just playing. But if we practice soccer, means that we have uniforms, we are in a team, and we are practicing every weekend. This is what Paul has in mind. Those who are practicing these kind of sins, many of you, you who are Christians, I'm talking to you, he says. The judgment of God is according to truth. But do you suppose this, oh man, when you pass judgment to those who practice such things and do the, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? No way. The judgment of God is rightly, is according to truth, is always in accord with the facts. He uses the same phrase at the beginning talking about this. Paul is debunking the idea that just because you are in a covenant relationship with God, you are excused from this condemnation. And Paul is saying, not because you are Jewish people or religious people, you are excused for God's judgment. You are included in it. You, yourself, is emphasized here. Before he said they, them, and now he's talking about you. What comes to your mind when you hear the word you? You, oh man. I'm talking about the story of David and Nathan. In 2 Samuel 12, remember? God is telling us here something amazing with this story. When David heard that Nathan's parable, he was upset. He was telling the story about this person who has only one sheep 
And the neighbor, who has many sheep, have guests at home, and decided to get his neighbor only sheep that was part of the family and kill it to, to give have a barbecue for, for the guests who were coming to their home. And, and, and David was upset. Well, that man needs to die. And then Nathan looked at him and lifted the finger and said, You the man, you the man, you. Because he was the one who took the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and killed the husband just to commit immorality with her. And he was upset for that story. And he wanted to kill the person in the story. And Nathan is saying, you are the man. Well, Paul is doing the same thing with you and me here. You are you condemning? Are you judging those who are making those mistakes? But you, what about you? How will you respond? Jesus gave us the answer to that question. In Matthew 7, he says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say you to your brother, let me, let me take that speck from your eye and behold the log that is in your own eye. You are a hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck of your brother's eye. Language matters. It's important. Before you decided to judge, it's not that we don't judge. But many times, we as Christians, we are judging the people in the world. We, we expect for them to behave the way that we know as Christians we need to behave. Paul is saying, no, judge the ones who are believers like yourself. But if you judge, don't judge according to the preferences. Judge according to the essentials, the sin, but not your preferences. We need to shift the language from they or them to me, myself, and I. Pastor Ray Preacher wrote the following examples. Listen carefully. If you do it, you are a liar. If I do it, I'm merely stretching the truth. If you do it, you are cheating. If I do it, I am bending the rules. If you do it, you are argumentative and divisive. If I do it, I have a strong convictions. You are a jerk, and I am having a bad day. You have a critical spirit. I bluntly tell the truth. You gossip, I just share a prayer request. You curse and swear, I let off steam. You are pushy, I am intensely goal-oriented. You are greedy, and I am taking care of business. You are a hypochondriac. And I am really, really sick. <laughs> you have a problem with pornography, and I'm just appreciating art. You stink. I am merely have an earthly aroma. <laughs> we rationalize our own sins. Oh, but we condemn the sins of other people. And Paul is saying, uh-uh. Before you even start lifting your finger, be careful. 
Because when you point one finger, there are three pointing back at you. And you need to start. You need to start thinking that way. So we need to start. So the crucible argument is that we have no right to judge or condemn others, especially when we fail to condemn ourselves. Why? Because that way we misunderstand and we misunderstand God's kindness. Look at the verse 4. And if you have a pen and you can highlight something in your Bible, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be thunder from heaven. It's tricky to, to you. You can write it. If you can highlight in your phone or your tablet, verse 4 is important. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? Oh, did I read correctly? We're talking about God's judgment. What, what kindness is coming from? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to your repentance? Well, some may question why God seems tolerant to Gentiles. The reality is that God extends the same grace to everyone, Gentiles and Jewish people, irreligious people and religious people as well. That reminds me something, and it's not a direct quote, but it's actually an interesting correlation with Hosea 12, 2, 14. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea was commanded by God to take Gomer as a wife. Gomer was a prostitute. And even when she became Hosea's wife, she continued doing adultery with other men. And he wanted him to take it back, to love her. And he said, I want you to feel so you can communicate to the people of Israel how I feel every day when they are adulterers going behind other idols and abandon me. So, and it's interesting that it's in, in Hosea 2, verse 4, he's using the word kindness. Look, therefore, behold, I will allure her. Think about Israel. I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Why God is speaking kindly to Israel? In the biblical context, God promises to restore his relationship with Israel whom he metaphorically describes as a wayward wife. Through a profound act of kindness, the word allure is used to signify God's tender, even seductive language, meaning to draw people back to him. Paul is using that analogy. God is kind to you. He's not harsh. He's speaking to you tenderly to allure you to come back and repent. Like a father who's trying to convince, when you have a little kid, six-year-old, seven-year-old, believe me, I know that. I mean, you give the commands, it might not obey you, but at least you give the commands. But when they are teenagers, something happened. They don't listen to you. So you need to be kind and allure this person and talk to this individual. Says, you know what? You know how much I love you. I love you. It doesn't matter what you've done. You know that I love you. So this is speaking kindly with the purpose of repentance. If God will be harsh, nobody will come back to him. He wants kind. And kindness is exactly how, by his grace, 
He's allowing us with this purpose so we can come back and repent. And repentance is not just a remorse. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of feet. If I'm going this way and then I come in that way, that's repentance. Yeah. Not just remorse because you were caught in the act and you feel sorry. Repentance is you forget the way that where you were going and come back. Even in moments of judgment, God's tender words, the purpose is to alert you and me to repentance. The accumulation of divine wrath in verse 5 is important. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up, remember the word? Last week we talked about the, the dam with a lot of water that has been accumulated or the ripening fruit. You are storing that this wrath for yourself for the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness, judgment of God. It's, imagine someone who is keeping just a poor, he's doing a poor job just paying the credit cards. I'm, I'm not speaking about anybody here. I don't know about your habits, but somebody who decided not to pay the credit cards. Month after month, he ignores the statements, thinking that the bank leniency gives him the freedom to delay. All the while, he doesn't realize that he's accumulating interest, late fees, and risking severe penalties. Finally, when he decides to face his debt, he's shocked to see how much he owes. This serves as a stark reminder that ignoring the bills will rack up through sin only accumulates divine wrath. Just because God doesn't open the ground and swallow you every time that you commit sin, it means that God is not keeping account of what you and I had done. In due time, judgment will come. Assuming that God's passion is the green light for sinfulness is exactly how the people who were listening to this letter were thinking, oh, we are God's people. That doesn't apply to us. He loves us. He doesn't condemn us. He's merciful. But he will let you go through the consequences because your sin will find you out. No shortcuts. Number two, God judges according to works. And from now on, we're going to speed up. Be ready. No shortcuts. God judges according to works. After exploring how God judges about excuses, here Paul in verse 6 is telling us something interesting. Quoting for Psalm 62, and this is important to tell you, that if you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to have a lot of problems understanding the book of Romans. Because in this letter in particular, Paul is quoting a lot of verses from the, book of Rom uh, from the Old Testament in the book of Romans. So he is quoting from Psalm 62, 12, or Proverbs 24, 12, saying the following, God who will render to each person according to, you, to his deeds. What are you talking about, Pastor? I, I, thought, I thought salvation is not by works, but by faith. How God is rendered to each person according to his deeds. I'm glad you asked. Because here, faith in Greek is pistis. It means leads to salvation. But if you reject God's offer, you are then judged by your works, your ergon. So when you say no to Jesus, 
You are effectively saying, I can set up my own standard of righteousness. And God says, all right, let's have it that way. But you need to do 100% of 100%. Not 99.9. It has to be the standard perfection. That's how we call sin, sin. Because we miss the mark. We miss the standard perfection. We try to earn the salvation on our own works. And it's impossible. For Paul, God's judgment isn't like the Olympic judge looking for performance. No, God is looking for a perfect score, 10 out of 10. In other words, a standard perfection. Verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Perseverance. Hupomone. It's a Greek word. No, it's not referring to perfection. It's direction in the same way for a long haul. That's perseverance. Eternal life means life pertaining to an age to come, but at the same time, a different life that Jesus has promised to us. He says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's something for the future, but it's something for the, to the now. Paul is describing the eternal life by words, glory, honor, and mortality. But at the same time, he's talking about those who reject it because he is not impartial. He is the same to those who disobey, and he is the same to those who obey. And in verse 8, he's saying, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, by obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be a tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, God's judgment is not impartial. It's impartial. It's not partial. Paul says that those who do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and indignation. Paul is specifically saying that Jewish people, they don't have a special treatment. Yes, we love Israel. Yes, we pray for them. We love to read the Old Testament says that you pray for Israel, your nation will be blessed. But you know what? Even the people of Israel will face judgment the same way that you and I we're going to face according to our own deeds, what we had done. God is taking account of that. Those who are pagans, those who are not believers, if they die, they're going to face the white throne. But you and I, we're going to be in front of the mercy seat of Christ. Showing exactly what we did, our works. I remember, by grace, we have been saved. But we have been saved so we can do good works. Paul's bottom line here is this. Everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, will face consequences. Lastly, no exceptions. Number three, God judges according to the light received. And what is this light means here? Light is the knowledge that God bestowed upon even those who are unbelievers, meaning in their conscience, like those who are believers because they know about God. So regardless, regardless if you are a person who doesn't read the Bible or you are somebody who read the Bible, you 
are going to be judged according to that light, to that knowledge that you have. After discussing how God judges, there is a universal standard. The law of God is a universal standard. He says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he shocks them by saying that even Gentiles, some without the Jewish law or a personal relationship with God, could be judged less harshly than the Jew. Why? Because they're supposed to know better. If you are a believer in Christ, you're supposed to know better. Don't think that you're going to be judged less harshly than those who doesn't know God on a personal level. Paul is saying that to us. Because we have a conscience. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are the law to themselves. I know it's a tongue twister, but hold on. In that they showed the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. What is exactly what Paul is saying here? He is giving you a conscience. He is giving you that inner light from God. He underscores that that knowledge, that shared knowledge of moral principles across humanity. You don't have to become a believer in knowing the Ten Commandments to understand that many cultures, even cultures that are pagan, they have laws similar to the Ten Commandments. In many other cultures, in other parts of the world, Assassination is, is not appropriate. Something like that. He explained that Gentiles, even though without the law, they have the law written in the heart. They have a conscience. And if not, they have creation and evidence. So they have no excuse. But also those who are religious leaders, they have no excuse because they have the law. They have the knowledge. Here is the kicker. God's standard is nothing short from perfection. Whether if it's a Gentile moral code or a mosaic law for the Jews, 100% conformity is required. If you decided to fulfill the law, you need to do it 100%. Not just the Ten Commandments. There were 963 precepts of those Ten Commandments. And if you miss one, you are it. So you cannot do it on your own terms. You need Christ. You need the grace of Christ. What he was able to accomplish in the cross for all of us, help us not to be under the law because he was under the law. Lastly, verse 16, seekers will be exposed. The final judgment will happen. On the day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. There are four things that you need to know about this verse. The day is set, it will happen. There will be a specific day of judgment that God has predetermined whether you believe it or not, it will happen. Number two, beyond our appearances, on that day, God will judge not just our actions, but also our hidden thoughts and motives. And I don't want God to know my secrets, but he knows. If you know my secrets, you will not have me as your pastor. But if we know your secrets, I will not want to preach to you. But one day before the Lord, 
all our secrets will be open and exposed. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, and Jesus will be our judge. Number three, judgment through Christ. The final judgment will be carried by Christ Jesus. And number four, the gospel is for everyone. Paul is saying, my gospel, both because he had personally owned it, but also he was personally defending it. He was actually sharing it. If you're going to consider God's gospel, your gospel, you need to believe it, you need to obey it, and you need to communicate it. So we started in Romans 2.1 discussing humanity's tendency to assume a portion of judgment, only to realize in verse 16 that the seat of judgment belongs only to God, not to us. We cannot point fingers on nobody. We only can put the fingers to ourselves. Time is ticking and tomorrow is not guaranteed. We need to repent. Imagine that we're back in that courtroom that we talked at the beginning, where the judge has to pass verdict to a close family member. It's a tense moment, I know, but the judge must uphold the law. The gavel comes down, the room goes silent, and the sentence is served. Just like that judge, God also has a standard, and he will not compromise. If you are the pastor, if you are the worship leader, if you are the person running the sound, if you are singing in the choir, if you are giving away the bulletin to green people, it doesn't matter. You will be judged the same way the world of us. So the practical application is this. Let's do a self-examination. Before we even think about judging somebody, let's look at our hearts. Reflect on your own life. Are you making excuses to avoid God's standards? Excuse won't hold you up. Excuse for sin are not going to be excused. Number two, grace in action. If you have been relying on shortcuts for salvation, let me tell you, that good deeds, that Bible studies, that things that you're doing are not shortcuts. Remember that it comes only through Jesus Christ, by faith in him, through grace alone. Number three, the universal love of accountability. A word that is so hard to define in Spanish. We need different translations because we don't have the word accountability. Being responsible. Give an account word. Treat everyone fairly and lovingly because God judges all impartiality. Don't make any exception. God doesn't favor anybody. Not because of the color of your skin, of the language you speak, of the country you are born. For God men and women, Jewish and Gentile, American and Hispanic, we're all the same. By embracing these principles, we prepare ourselves for the moment to stand before God, where there is no excuses. As we conclude, remember that we are equally, equally accounted to God. We need grace. The good news is grace is freely available through us in Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your life? Have you, have you trusted him? Why don't you trust him today? Think about this. The son of the righteous judge, God the Father, willingly took our place in the defendant's seat. 
He bore the penalty of our crimes and absorbed the fully wrath of God by making himself guilty on your behalf, on my behalf, and take those sins and crucify them on that cross. If this is astonishing, God declare you innocent of all the crimes committed because Jesus paid them all on that cross. You just need to trust him. As the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become righteousness of God. We are not righteous, but we receive Christ's righteousness, and he clothed us with that righteousness. He declared us not guilty, and we are free to go to him. So accountability to God is inevitable, but grace through Christ is available. Think that. The choice is yours. Would you trust Christ, or would you trust yourself and try to earn your own way to heaven. I will encourage you to do the first because the other one will be impossible. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are here before you. We are aware of our imperfections. We are aware of our shortcomings. We are aware of our sins. Today, as we open your scriptures, we recognize that we are accountable to you, the righteous judge. We admit that by our own efforts, we, we will fall short. And there is no way for us to earn your grace or escape from your judgment, Lord. So I ask you, Father, I implore you, for those who haven't trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, I ask you, Father, that this can be the moment that this person can decide to do so. May them understand that the door of your grace is wide open today. And that by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, they can be justified. They can be declared non-guilty for all the sins that that person has been committing, past, present, and future. Just trusting in Jesus, inviting them into their lives to become his or her savior, to forgive their sins, and to give them the gift of their eternal life. And for those of us who were already trusted in Jesus Christ, Father, help us. Reignite our passion to follow you as Lord of our lives. Help us not to take your grace for granted, but to live each day in gratitude and obedience, to be grateful for what you had done. And as we finish today, Father, help us. We just cannot stop giving you thanks for your incredible grace, for your kindness that lead us into repentance. You took what was deserved for me so that I could have 
what I could never earn. May we live in a manner worthy of such love. And may your name be glorified this morning and ever. And we ask you this in the precious name, above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody says, Amen.